So, first of all, I want to dedicate this class to my brother, Samacheshua Ben Baruch Samaliyahu, who is Neshama Shehav and Aliyah. Um, last class, we had some things that came up. So before we get back into the chapter, I want to address those things that came up. First of all, um, we talked about women and Torah study because we know that women don't have the same obligation in Torah study as men do, although they do have a constant obligation in Torah study as far as knowing what the halachas are. Um, the halachas that pertain. That pertain to them, which are a lot of halachas. Think about not just women's halachas, the laws of kosher, the laws of Shabbos. To be an expert in those laws, you really have to be studying. But I also found, hi, I also found uh, from the works of the Chafetz Chaim, where he writes that in the olden days, it was fine that women were just like getting educated in the house. But in today's generation, it's not like that anymore. And this is already in the Chafetz Chaim's times. Women have to be studying Tanakh and Medrash, Halacha. They have to be studying all those things. So it's not any, we don't, if someone wants to say, well, women don't have to study Torah, not anymore. Women absolutely have to be studying Torah. And also, you know those people that you meet and they say, yeah, Judaism, yeah, not for me. I went to Hebrew school and Judaism is not for me. You went to Hebrew school, so you studied Judaism at a second grade level. And now you've progressed and you've been studying, not, not, you've been studying science and psychology and you've been keeping up with current events. And so your worldly knowledge has progressed to the age of a 23-year-old and a 35-year-old, a 50-year-old, a 70-year-old, but your Judaism is at the level of a second grader and you expect to compete. That's not going to work. In today's world where people are absorbing knowledge, there's no way to live a life in tune with Hashem without studying. Every single Jewish person must study Torah if we want to have a relationship with Hashem. And furthermore, Maimonides writes that in order to love Hashem and to fear Hashem, we have to learn about Him. If we're not learning about him, we cannot have the love and fear of Hashem that we should. And that's one of the, those are the two of the six constant mitzvahs. There are six perpetual mitzvahs that every single Jewish person has incumbent upon them every single moment. And two of them are to love Hashem and to fear Hashem. And if a woman is not studying about Hashem, she's not able to keep those mitzvahs. So women absolutely have to be studying to her. There's no two ways about it, especially in our generation. Just like you are what you eat, you are what you know. And if you do not know about Torah, if you do not know about Hashem, you are not up to date and you're not current in your relationship with Hashem. So there's no two ways about it. Women have to be studying Torah. It affects our mindset. It affects our personalities. Whatever we know, that's who we become. Since, since Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, there's no such thing as totally objective knowledge anymore. Once they ingested from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Knowledge now became a subjective experience. That's why we try not to know things that we shouldn't know, because they affect us. There's no such thing as knowing without being affected. Once you know something, it changes who you are. In fact, I remember my sister telling me that there was some woman homeschooling their kids, and they, they would get together and have these lessons together, and the children asked, uh, eight-year-old children asked their mother, um, you know, how do children come to this world? And so they said, well, we're homeschooling. So they went to the library. How do you break the news to the kids? And, and then they sat the kids down, and they gave them a lesson. And the little eight-year-old looked at her mommy and said, Mommy, I wish you never told me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once you know, you can't unknow. And there's a certain age to know certain things. In today's progressive, ridiculous world, we think that children are supposed to be absorbing knowledge on the same level of, as adults when it comes to the knowledge of the world out there. Absolutely not. And so that's in that respect. But when it comes to our relationship with Hashem, our knowledge changes us. We must learn Torah if we want to have a, a good, a true relationship with Hashem. So that's absolutely, women must be studying Torah in the most absolute form. There's, I can't say it any stronger way. If I haven't said it strong enough, then please help me. Women must be studying Torah. There's no two ways about it. Then the other thing that came up last class, and I'm sorry that both Roya and Susan are not here because they are both fascinated it, by it. But we, we talk, if you look carefully, and we read through these words already, but if you go to page one, two, three, four, Hey, you don't have one. Here we go, on page four. If you go to page four, 
the altar of saying is speaking about um, becoming fused with the will of Hashem. And then he writes, similarly, all the letter combinations, you see right in the middle of the page, above the three lines, above the three dots, he says, similarly, all the letter combinations of the Pentateuch, prophets, and the holy writings, the Kesuvim, are also expressions of Hashem's will and wisdom. Now, his language over here is very exact. You see the terms that he uses? He says, the letter combinations of the Pentateuch, prophets, and holy writings. Because when it comes to Tanakh, when it comes to the Torah, Nevi'im, and Kesuvim, the holiness of that part of Torah, the written Torah, Torah Shebech Sav, lies in the very letters of the Torah. There's a big difference between the written Torah and the oral Torah. When it comes to the written Torah, first and foremost, their primary source of holiness is their letters. When it comes to the oral Torah, the source of holiness in the oral Torah is in the concept and the ideas that we understand. And um, I want to explore this idea a little bit further because we don't realize the inherent holiness in the actual words of Torah. That's why if somebody just reads Tehillim, like we mentioned last week, if you read Tehillim without even understanding, because it's part of Tanakh, you are fulfilling this mitzvah of Torah, of Torah study, and furthermore, you are affecting this union, whereas it's not the same case if you start reading a page of Talmud, just the words and you have no idea what you're saying. The experience is not happening for you. But when it comes to Tanakh, the experience lies within its very letters. Now, Listen to this. The Talmud says, how do we know that we need to make a bracha before we study Torah? So he quotes from Parshas Hazinu. From, it's like a poem. And it says, Kishem Hashem Ekra Havu Godel Lelokeinu. When I call out the name of God, bring praise to Hashem. Godel is greatness. Bring praise to Hashem. Praise Hashem when I call out the name of God. That's how we know that we need to make a bracha before studying Torah, okay? Every single morning we say a bracha before. Part of the morning brachot, we say, that's another version of the same bracha. We say, who has chosen us. We call it Torah. You can't actually study Torah before you make a bracha on the Torah. And the Talmud says, how do I know this? Again, he quotes, it quotes from the Torah saying, Kishem Hashem Ekra Havu When I call the name of God, bring praise to God. When I call out the name of God, bring praise to God, this is how you know you make a bracha on the Torah. So the Maharsha, a commentator on the Talmud, explains, and this is from the Zohar, and Ramban also quotes this, that Kal Hatayra Kula Shmaisav Shalakadish Baruchu. The entire Torah are the names of God. The letter combinations of the Torah are the name of God. When the, when the Talmud says, how do you know you make a bracha on the Torah before learning Torah? When I call out the name of God, praise God. Learning Torah, saying the words of Tanakh, is saying the names of God. The entire Torah is the names of God. The entire Torah is the names of God. The fact that we understand anything of Tanakh at all, that we read it and it has a storyline and a meaning, that's like third level code. It's like, you know how they, the spies encode things? And this is an example from Rabbi Steinsaus. You know how the spies encode things, right? So they first, like, they write a message. And the message is really seeming, it's just a very innocent message, right? Then you decipher the message, maybe you circle every third letter, and then you have another message. Well, that message is that also an innocent message, and it hides a third message. The fact that we understand anything of the Torah, of the written Tanakh, is first of all amazing, but its true and basic meaning is completely incomprehensible because the entire Torah is the names of Hashem. Now, this next thing that I want to tell you about the Torah, I was kind of afraid to say it at class, so I asked my husband for permission. <laughs> because it's, it's very cryptic and it's very mind-boggling. So don't let me go if there's something about it that you don't understand because it's a little bit dangerous, okay? <laughs> so the last eight pesukim of the Torah where it describes Moshe's death. Who wrote this pesukim? 
Who wrote them? It says, Vayama Sham Moshe. It's him, there's, um, he was predicting his death and he wrote it. Okay, so, so Asnad is saying he was predicting his death, so he wrote it. And Jill is saying... He, well, they say that there were no um, spaces in the words or there were no, um, um, what do they call them? You know, when you have the little, hey, what is it called? When you have the grammatical things to it so that you don't actually, he didn't actually know. He was writing the words, but he didn't actually know what the words were. Okay. So it speaks about this to the Talmud, and Rashi quotes this, and he brings two opinions. He says, Moshe wrote up until here, and Yahushua wrote the rest. And then he quotes Rabbi Meir saying, could it be that there is a Torah that's incomplete? It says that Moshe took this Torah and he handed it over to the Shvatim. Could Moshe have given a Torah that's incomplete? He can't give a Torah that's incomplete. So what is it? What does Rabbi Meir say? Moshe was writing, Hashem was dictating... And Moshe was writing Bidema with tears. Now you have to understand that Moshe couldn't be writing a lie. He can't be alive and writing Vayama Sham Moshe. Moshe died. So what was he writing? So the Baal Shem Tov explains this. And I saw the very same idea quoted in the works of the Vilna Gon, which is very, very interesting to me. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And the end, he writes of his whole, this whole thing, and he said, the words are true to the one who said it. That's what the Vilna Gaon writes at the end of it. And I was learning that on your test kiss late. So, he says like this, both of these explanations are one and the same. The fact that, that Yahushua wrote it is true. The fact that Moshe wrote it, Bedema, is also true. They're not contradicting each other. They're saying the same thing. What are they saying? You have to understand what the word Dema means. Dema means tears, but it also has another meaning, and that is a mixture. We have to understand, like we say demai, it's like a mixture, or like let's say teruma got mixed in. We have to understand that essentially Torah is incomprehensible. What is Torah? As the Zohar says, entire Torah is the names of Hashem. Torah is the name of Hashem. When it says, Kishem Hashem referring to Torah, I'm calling the name of Hashem because Torah is all, only the names of Hashem. That's what Torah is. The, when you say the names of Hashem, that's getting me a little confused. I think of it as the essence of Hashem. It's the essence of Hashem. Okay. It's the essence of Hashem, but the letter combinations that are within the Torah are Hashem's names. The Torah is the essence of Hashem being His wisdom. Now, essence, what is essence? It's, it's the most inner core of who you are. The most inner essential thing, part of anything. It's the inseparable basic unit. So, what was happening over here? Maisha was writing the Torah as they were the names of Hashem. As Hashem dictated them, he wrote it bedema in a mixture, meaning not as we comprehend them. He wrote the letters, but they had no meaning that we understand. It's only after he passed away that Yehoshua then wrote it as in a way that we comprehend it. Moshe wrote the Torah. The entire Torah was there, including the story of his death. But when he, before he died, that part of the story was incomprehensible. It was simply letter combinations. So, but why he was crying then? It was incomprehensible to us or to... He, he so why was he crying? He, he understood. Moshe understood. But he understood. So what Moshe gave us at that time is he gave us the Torah as it was on the most esoteric level. And Yehoshua, when he gave it to us, gave it to us then in a way that we can understand on its revealed level. So we stopped at this to understand what it means when the Altar of is quoting here and saying, say, Rufe Isis Tanakh, the letter combinations of Tanakh. Because we have to understand that the primary holiness lies in the actual letters of Tanakh beyond their meaning. And the meaning is, of course, holy too, and we can't say that the Absolutely, the meaning is holy and the meaning is the wisdom of Hashem. But we have to understand the inherent holiness in Torah is, lies beyond what we can comprehend. But whatever we do comprehend is 100% the truth. And how, remember, Susan asked that question last week and I wanted to quote Stainsdale, but I couldn't remember his exact line. And his line was like this The Torah that we have is not entire, but it is entirely true. So when a little boy studies Torah and he understands Bereshus Bara Elohim in the beginning Hashem created, he has 100% grasped the divine the same way the wisest man when he studies Torah. 
because whatever he get, grasps of it is 100% true, and that is Hashem himself. So this is really what we were in the middle of last week. And we got up to, we, we, we contrasted the difference between mitzvah performance and Torah study. And mitzvah performance, when a person performs a mitzvah, their spiritual energies, which is their vivifying soul, and the faculty of action of their divine soul become as limbs to the body. That's why the mitzvahs are called, in the Tukun Zohar, Evari Demalka, limbs of the king. Where the contrast is that when it comes to Torah, it said, oh, right, the Zohar says, Torah and Hashem are entirely one. That when a person studies Torah, their thinking, their power of speech, and the divine soul itself becomes fused with Hashem in the ultimate sense of unity, like Hashem's thought and Hashem's speech are fused with Hashem's very essence. So I have a question. Yeah. So when, when men are learning Gemara, mm-hmm. it's really kind of, it sounds like it's a step down from learning the actual Torah. So you're asking a very amazing question, and that's a question that we address in chapter 5. And there's two experiences of studying Torah. There's the studying of Torah, such as the reading of the Torah, and then there's the study of Torah, such as the comprehension of the Torah. And on one hand, when we study Tanakh, we say, even if we don't understand, we're having this incredible experience. But there's something different to us that happens when we understand Torah. And that's what the Talmud says like this. Mevatlin Talmud Torah, we cancel our Torah study in order to hear the Megillah. Cancel the Torah study in order to hear Megillah, but Megillah is part of Tanakh. So how could you say that we're canceling Torah study in order to hear Megillah? Megillah is Tanakh, and not just Tanakh. It's Terufi Isaiah's Tanakh, right? The letter, there's inherent holiness in the letters itself. But there's something different when a person understands Torah. So when a person is studying Talmud and they understand Talmud, from the subjective human experience, and not, not now what we're saying about uh, canceling all the symptomim. Now we're looking at the chapter 5 experience where we said that when a person understands an idea of Torah, it's like they've eaten food. And the, they imbibe godliness. It becomes part of their psyche. Their, the, the now, the, the Torah that they studied has become part of their mind and essentially changed them. So while the essential holiness of Torah, everything stems from Tanakh, and that's the primary source of holiness for everything, including the Talmud, that's where the Talmud comes from. Essentially, Talmud is an explanation of Tanakh. But yet when they understand Talmud, then studying Talmud and is called, reading the Megillah is an interruption of Torah study when it comes to studying Talmud. Because when you understand something deeply, it's at a whole other level. It's a whole different level of relationship. It's, it's so important to study because studying changes who we are. So when, so when the men are studying Talmud, or women, whoever is studying, someone is studying Torah in a way that it, it causes them to deeply think and um, absorb, cogitate and then try to absorb the ideas and understand the effort that they expend in that becomes part of who they are. And so there's a certain way, there's something higher about that. So why aren't, I'm not you can't saying, neglect, you, you can't neglect one for the other. The Talmud tells us how a person is supposed to divide their Torah study time. So why aren't, I'm not saying they should be obligated because it's a time commitment, but why aren't women, why isn't that a normal part of women's study? Uh, ta- why isn't Talmud a normal part of women's study? Okay, so the, Maimonides speaks about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, hi. He says like this. Afraid to say it. He says, a man who teaches his daughter Torah, and we're talking about the Talmud. Not, he wasn't talking about Tanakh in this instance. He was talking about Talmud. A man who teaches his daughter Torah, it's like he teaches her fables and parables because most women are not able to understand things at that level. Now, to understand those kind of ideas. Does that change in the generation of today? Has that changed in the generation of today? I hope so, because women are studying more. There's a lot of women who 
I mean, look, even in the times of the Talmud, there was the famous Beruria, the wife of Rabbi Meir, I think it was Rabbi Shimon who said about her that we, we accept her opinion over her brothers because she's smarter than her brother. You know what I'm saying? There's always been the exceptions to the rule of women studying Torah. But then there was the regular women who were illiterate. That wasn't the way they were raised, and actually it wasn't so necessary in the olden days. Nowadays, you can't. So should a woman study Talmud nowadays? That's not the first thing a woman needs to study. If she has time to study Talmud, if she has a deep interest where she feels like she's so intellectually starving that if she doesn't study the Talmud, she's going to get hurt, she should definitely study the Talmud. A regular woman who doesn't feel that way shouldn't start from Talmud. That's not her obligation. She has to first start from, she has to know, first of all, it's important for a woman to do Parsha. Every single week, a woman should be, every single day, studying the, the Torah portion of that, that, that section. So, the first, on Sunday, you should study Chumash and Rashi from the beginning of the Parsha till Shani, which is like where they, where they break to call somebody up to the Torah. Maybe it's the coffee. <laughs> so a woman should be studying, you know, Chumash. A woman should definitely be studying Shulchan Arach in order for us to know how to keep halacha. We must study Shulchan Arach. We can't forget how important it is for a woman to study Shulchan Arach. And I know I told this story before of the grandmother of the Alter Rebbe who was proficient in Shulchan Arach, so much so that when a halachic question came up on Shabbos where they were walking, they were walking home from Shul, and the men were carrying their books home so they could study. The women were wearing gloves, and all of a sudden the, the Gabbai came to say that the Arab broke. So they weren't allowed to, to carry. So there they are, and now they don't know what to do. And the men are discussing Talmud, and they don't know what to do. And the, the, her father says, Rabbi, Rabbi Baruch says to her husband, who didn't know that she was a Torah scholar, <laughs> says, here we are, we're so back and forth in the Talmud, we don't even know what the, what the halacha is. And he said, Rachel, you are an expert in Shulchan Aruch. Tell us what to do. So she said, okay. So the men should like go pass it hand in hand, you know, one walk aside, the other pass, 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 until they have to get to passing it from the private public domain to the private domain. At that point, the non-Jewish person will bring it in. And the women, we're wearing gloves, but we'll remind each other not to take off our gloves. So it's not a problem for us carrying. And then they get home and right away they go to the Shulchan Aruch to see if she was right. And of course she's right. <laughs> so they were so busy studying the Talmud, they didn't know what the bottom line is. They remember all the back and forth. They didn't remember what the actual halacha is. Now her husband was of a school of thought where that woman were not educated. He was very, very upset that his, woman, his wife was so learned. And he said, most women look up to their husbands and now I have to look up to my wife. <laughs> And so her, her, her father said, it says that the wife of a Talmud Chacham is considered a Talmud Chacham. The wife is a thief, is considered a thief. It's your choice what you make of my daughter. And he accepted that rebuke. And of course they had an excellent relationship, Baruch Hashem, and he got over it. <laughs> but so first and foremost, if you want to study Torah... No one's going to stop you from studying Talmud, but don't forget the order of importance. The order of importance is study Jewish law. You should know what you need to do. And definitely, if you want to study Talmud, go ahead and study Talmud. So, here we go. Thank you. Let's get to where we were. And, okay, so we were just contrasting the different kinds of fusion that happens between mitzvah performance and Torah study. And the fusion that happens, okay, what page are we on? What page were we on? We're on page eight. Oh, but I want seven, seven. No, no, I'm not in my booklet. Maybe we're on a different booklet. Because I think we have a few different, yeah. The last thing I have that was this discussion of the exalted unity with God. That was the last. Okay, so. This, yes, that's where I am. And mine is on page 7. So on the bottom of page 7, depending on which booklet you have. So we were, um, we were discussing the difference of fusion that happens between Mitzvah performance and Torah study. When it's Mitzvah performance, the spiritual energies of the animal soul and plus the faculty of action of the divine soul become fused with the divine will as body to a soul. Meaning, just as a body expresses the soul, 
so too does the mitzvah act express Hashem's deepest desire. But when it comes to fusion of Torah study, the fusion is so perfect, it's hash, as the person who studies Torah, their divine soul, their thought and their power of speech becomes so fused with the divine as Hashem's speech and thought are fused with his own essence. Which is really astounding. It's like, I don't know how a person can actually utter these words and sit so calmly. It's because what we said last week, that we don't, our, our body blocks us from experiencing this experience. That this, this divine light that sustains all the worlds, that brings all the worlds into existence, and yet does not invest itself in the worlds because they will not be able to handle this exposure, this level of light, and yet this level stands openly revealed within our souls at the time of Torah study. Okay, so now, Uvaze Yuvan Lama God Lama Aid Mailas Haesek Batira Yaisimiko Hamitzvais Vaafilu Mitfila Shihi Yichut Ailamais Al Yainim. This discussion of the exalted unity with Hashem attained through Torah study, which is even greater than that accomplished by performing the mitzvahs, explains why Torah study is so much loftier than all the other mitzvahs, including even prayer, which affects unity within the supernal worlds. Because remember last week, Jill, you asked about prayer. So Torah study is worth more than all the mitzvahs. Now, again, I'm going to stress what we stressed last week. That doesn't mean that a person should not be doing mitzvahs. Instead, they should be doing Torah study. Like the Talmud says, a person who studies not to do, it's better that their placenta turned over and they're never born. The point of Torah study is ultimately we need to make this world a home for Hashem and we need to know how to do the mitzvah. So yes, a person needs to interrupt their Torah study in order to perform a mitzvah that somebody else cannot perform. But what about prayer? Prayer it affects a unity in all the worlds. It, when a person prays, they affect union in the higher worlds. First of all, they affect a union with Hashem, their self to Hashem. They become emotionally attached with Hashem during prayer. <laughs> a multi-generational class today Baruch Hashem <laughs> so they affect an attachment of their soul with Hashem they feel Hashem they, they have an emotional attachment to Hashem but also the spiritual effect of their prayer is that it creates a greater level of unity with Hashem's sifirot and the higher worlds but the unity that they affect in the higher worlds is only a level of this contracted divine light that is drawn from Hashem's essential will. Hashem's essential inner will being the Torah. So let's replace Hashem's most essential inner will as Torah. All the worlds are sustained by just a ray that is drawn from the Torah. Whereas when it comes to Torah study, this essential divine will it stands openly revealed within the person's soul. And that's why we can understand why, what it says, like we mentioned last week, quoting from the Jerusalem Talmud, that it says, all of the mitzvahs are not even equivalent to one matter of Torah. That's what it says. It says in, it says in, in Mishnayis and Peah, it says, and we say it every day in the morning prayers, we say, V'talmah Torah k'neged kulam. Torah study is equivalent to them all. And the Talmud, in quoting Mishlei, says that wisdom is worth more than rubies. Anything desirable cannot be equivalent to it. And even the desires of heaven, meaning desirable objects of heaven, meaning mitzvahs, even all the mitzvahs are not equivalent to Torah study. So now, why do we find that people anyway interrupt their prayer for Torah study. Although the law requires anyone whose Torah study is not his entire occupation, he interrupts his study for prayer, which would seem to indicate that, Torah, that prayer surpasses Torah study. This is only so because he, in any case, would pause and interrupt his studies. So if Torah study affects a greater union with Hashem than prayer, why would somebody be required to interrupt Torah study and pray? The law, it, certain people don't have to interrupt Torah study and pray. We don't have any of them in this generation. We had them many, many generations ago, most famously Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar. 
He was somebody about him who had said, Torasai Umanusai. Torah was his tor- total occupation. He was constantly busy with Torah study. Somebody like him did not have to interrupt his prayer for Torah study. In fact, the Talmud tells us there was an argument between Rabbi Shurim Bar Yochai and Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Shurim Bar Yochai didn't like to see all these people just working and planting. What are you doing? He said, if a person plows the land when it's plowing time and sows when it's sowing time and reaps when it's reaping time, Torah matahi what's going to be with the Torah? Stop it. You just study Torah and others are going to take care of your work for you. And Rabbi Shemuel said, no, 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 that's not the way to go. It has to be Torah and derech eretz. Some of the time you learn, some of the time you work. And then the Talmud finishes and says like this, a lot of people tried to do Rabbi Shemuel Bar Yochai's method and it didn't work for them. <laughs> They figured, well, I'll do that. I'll just learn, and my work will be done by other people. I'd like to do that, but it doesn't work. <laughs> there's so many people who do this. Yeah. That, that's, that's a different arrangement. Yeah. We're talking about not having to ask people to. It just happens on its own that somehow their work, they, he, he studied Torah, and somehow his work was taken care of. Oh, okay. like, it's like a kind of miraculous magic. arrangement. Yeah, well, not magic, but miraculous. <laughs> yeah, miraculous, right? So it said, try, lots of people tried to copy him, it didn't work out. And then a lot of people did Rabbi Shmuel's method and it worked very well for them. Some of the time they worked, some of the time they studied Torah. The Baal Shem Tov actually speaks about it. He said, why didn't it work for them? Because they weren't on the level of Rabbi Shmuel Bar Yechai. You gotta know your place. You have to know who you are. If you're on the level of Rabbi Shmuel Bar Yechai, absolutely all you should be doing is studying Torah and somehow it's all gonna work out for you. And hopefully that actually works out for all of us. That would be a really nice arrangement. <laughs> But somebody like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, whose Torah study was his total occupation, always, he didn't even have to interrupt for prayer. But somebody, the law is that somebody whose Torah study is not their entire occupation, they do need to interrupt for, for, for prayer. So why? So the Altarab explains. Why, is he, why does he have to interrupt for prayer? The law is, it's not the law which causes him to interrupt. The law merely states that the interruption which would, he would have to make anyway be at the time designated for prayer. As soon as he interrupts his studies, he is automatically obliged to pray. To, to pray, Meaning, you anyway have to interrupt. You have to take care of your business. You have stuff to take care of, right? So our sages instituted that you interrupt your Torah study because you're anyway going to be interrupting your Torah study. You have other things to do. You're going to have to interrupt your Torah study. You need to interrupt it when it's time for prayer. And now that you've interrupted your Torah studies and it's prayer time, first of all, you have to pray. It's not proper that a person should be interrupting for business and they're not interrupting for prayer. So when you interrupt for business, it should be at the time of prayer, and then automatically you have the obligation to pray. From this explanation of the lofty stature of Torah study, the wise man, meaning the sensitive man, will be able to draw upon himself a sense of great awe as he engages in the study of Torah. So what brings awe upon a person? Now, a lot of times in our generation especially, we don't like to hear the word fear of God. People are like, fear of God? That sounds terrible, fear of God. Well, I have news for you. Fear of God is one of the best things we could ever have. Absolutely. And just physically and psychologically, it's like the best thing you could ever have. And a person who is a, has fear of God, a person who is afraid of Hashem, <laughs> is afraid of nothing else. You get it? If a person is afraid of Hashem, they're not afraid of anything else. If they're not afraid of Hashem, then they're afraid of everything else. We have to make like a parade now. <laughs> so, so first of all, let's get rid of our... our um, nervousness when we hear of the word fear of God. Fear of the God is one of the best things that could ever happen to us. Second of all, let's examine what fear of God is. We're not talking about fear of somebody coming after us with a baseball bat. We're talking about something totally different. So first of all, when it comes to fear of God, there's two levels of fear of God. There's the fear of God that the Alta Rebbe calls in chapter 41 in Tanya, that means the beginning of service of God and its root and core. And that is, without this lower level of fear, that means that you don't want to rebel against Hashem, afraid to actually do something against His will, nobody's going to serve Hashem. First of all, they need this basic fear in order to serve Hashem. 
the fear of rebelling against him. But then there's a higher level of fear. And each of these levels, of this, there's two basic categories, but each of these categories have many levels. There is the higher level of fear known as Yira Ila'a, also known as Yiras HaRaimimus. That means awe of Hashem's majesty. That's not anymore just afraid to go against Hashem's will. This is an inner awe that makes a person feel, once they realize Hashem's greatness, as absolutely nothing. This is a, a totally different level of awe. It said of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov when he was a little kid, if he felt like he thought something that he shouldn't have thought or did something that he shouldn't do as a little child, he would blush. It was this shame, this awe of Hashem's majesty that he had. So these are generally two categories of fear. And when it comes to feeling fear or this great sense of majesty, think about a noble king. In today's day and age, we don't really have that kind of nobility. But somebody who's really noble to their core, somebody who is really majesty, majestic. And the person that I can think of is the Rebbe, because that's somebody who just was majestic like a king. Not something that's not just, you know, some president that is not, you know, refined or just somebody who is a representation of what it means to be a king. The closer that you are in their proximity, the greater sense of awe you felt. When you were very close to the Rebbe, you were just overtaken by this awe, realizing as much as you could what caliber of a person you are standing in front of. Now, a, per- a person is going to have a certain level of awe when it comes to a smaller minister, a greater level of awe when it comes to a greater minister, but then the level of awe that they're going to feel when they stand before the king himself is going to be way above that. So first of all, the greater the stature, the greater the awe. And then the greater the pro- proximity, the greater the awe. It's one thing to feel the awe of the king when you're in the next country, then you feel the awe of the king when you're in the same village, but then when you're standing right in front of the king. So we're talking about somebody of the great stature of a real noble king. So the, the highest level of majesty that there's available to the human being. And then the greatest level of closeness, the awe that a person is going to feel at that time is going to be astounding. That's really what happens to us when we study Torah. And this is what the Altar Rebbe is going to say over here. We have to realize that the fusion that is happening is, first of all, the ultimate level of fusion. It's a fusion as though Hashem's own thought and his own speech with his very essence. When we study Torah, the fusion that takes place is in the ultimate level of closeness. And furthermore, with what level are we uniting? We're uniting with this level of light that is boundless, that is infinite. It's the most infinite level. It's the level that none of the world, not even the highest world of Atsilas, could handle in a way of being enclosed. And this level is being enclosed in our soul. So this should bring us a great awe. When he considers how his soul and its garments of thought and speech that are found in his brain that are found in his brain and mouth are truly fused in perfect, perfect unity with the divine will. And the infinite light of Ein Sof that is manifest in them, meaning in the soul and its garments when he studies Torah. This infinite light, okay, so first of all, he's really seeing the level of fusion. It's a total fusion that's happening with his divine soul and his thought and his power of speech. So the, the fusion, the closeness is this ultimate level of closeness. And what type of, with which light of Hashem are they fusing? It's such a lofty level that all the upper and lower worlds are truly as not in comparison to it. They're like nothing. In fact, as absolutely nothing at all. So much so that they can only bear to have a minute glow of it, clothed in them without their reverting to nothingness altogether. Their main life force, which they receive from it, however, is not clothed within them, but animates them 
from the outside, so to speak, in a transcendent, encompassing manner. When he considers that the very same divine light that is completely beyond the capacity of all the worlds manifests itself openly in his Torah study, the thinking man will naturally experience a sense of awe when he studies Torah. Think about what happens when you study Torah. You're going you're gonna to feel this awe. You're so close to Hashem himself. The awe that you're going to feel at that time. This is what's written in the Torah. This is the meaning. And Hashem commanded us to fulfill all these statutes in order to fear God. According to this verse, observing the mitzvahs would appear to be the first step. And this leads to the fear of God. So we, we read the verse so you don't understand. Hashem commanded us all these statutes in order to fear God. I thought you can't serve God if you don't fear God. How could you serve God if you don't fear God? So we, we discussed there's two levels of fear. And that's what the Mishnah in Perkei says like this. If there is no wisdom, there is no fear. If there is no fear, there is no wisdom. All right, so we're stuck. <laughs> Which do you start with? Do you start with fear? Do you start with wisdom? Because apparently each of them needs the other. And so where do you begin? But we're speaking about two different levels of fear. There's the level of fear of not rebelling against Hashem. That's the root of uh, the beginning of service Hashem. Just that you don't want to rebel against Him. But then there's a higher level of fear. And this type of fear you can't get without wisdom. This level of fear comes specifically through Torah study. Logically, however, the performance of the mitzvahs would seem to be a result of one's fear of Him and not vice versa. The altar therefore explains that the above verse speaks of a higher level of awe than that which is a prerequisite for performing the commandments. This level can only be attained as a result of one's observance of the commandments. Okay, so they over here are translating it differently by saying that they're saying, Hashem commanded us to fulfill all these statutes. They're saying it's the mitzvahs that bring us awe. It is true that the mitzvahs bring us awe, but, um, and they're saying like this. Now, if the commandments lead one to a higher level in the fear of God, surely the study of Torah leads one to a still higher level. They're saying this, they're saying this verse tells us that the commandments bring us to love Hashem. And that's true, the commandments do bring us to love Hashem. But this verse actually could also be interpreted as the Torah brings us to fear Hashem. Because commentaries on the Torah, including the Sephorno, <laughs> commentaries on this verse, including the Sephorno, actually interpret when it says, that God commanded us. All these commandments were on page 8. Mean the study of the Torah. That it's the study of the Torah that leads us to this fear of Hashem. Now we're going to turn the page. Regarding this great fear, our sages said, if there is no wisdom, there is no fear. In this context, wisdom represents Torah study and fear the higher level of awe of Hashem, which can be reached only by way of the Torah. By contrast, the statement, if there is no fear, there is no wisdom, refers to the lower level of fear, which is a prerequisite for Torah study, as stated above. In relation to this level of fear, the Torah is called a gateway to the dwelling, meaning the sole means of entering the dwelling, the higher level of fear, as explained elsewhere. Okay, so now, understanding what we've understood until now, we can understand how it is that a person understands this, they will understand how Torah brings them to the ultimate level of awe in Hashem. The highest level being Yira Gedola, great awe. We said that there were two levels of fear. One was the basic level, without which you can't serve Hashem. If you don't have this fear of rebelling against Him, you will not serve Hashem. But then, that's just step one. That's the one when the Mishnah says, Im ein yira ein If there's no fear, there's no wisdom, there's no Torah study. This is the basic level. First, there needs to be fear in order to be wisdom. But then there's another level of fear that, or we'll call it awe, that we can only attain through Torah study. You will not be able to reach this level of awe without studying Torah. Studying Torah was what brings this level of awe. And if you think about the level of closeness that we reach with Hashem when we study Torah, you will be able to draw to yourself this level of fear. We think about when we study Torah, what happens when we study Torah? It's the ultimate level of fusion. 
A person who studies Torah, their divine soul, their thought, their power of speech fuses with the highest level of Hashem's light that all the worlds do not, are not able to have enclosed within them or they would void out of existence. They all draw their life force from an emanation of the Torah. And yet when we study Torah, the Torah stands openly revealed in our divine soul in the ultimate level of fusion. If you think of the unity that we experience with Hashem and with what level Hashem we experience this unity, you're suddenly awestruck. You suddenly feel like, I can't believe it. This is incredible. Look how close I am to Hashem. And that's why the Talmud calls Torah study Tara Ladarta. That means the gateway to the dwelling. Ultimately, what we're trying to achieve is this level of fear of Hashem. And you can only, the, the gateway is the Torah study and the dwelling being this level of fear of Hashem. You can only get it when you study Torah. You appreciate the closeness that you reach with Hashem when you study Torah. But the fear is actually love when it comes to that level. The fear is love when it comes to that level. Well, were you here when we talked about fear? No. We, we, uh, yeah, <laughs> we okay. addressed okay, this. Addressed I'll tell you why we addressed okay. it, because in today's world, we're so afraid to say fear of God. And so we addressed it. You're going to listen to the recording. But no, actually, <laughs> actually, we're talking about awe. But it's not fear as in, I'm afraid. Any, any level of fear of Hashem, a true level of fear of Hashem, even the basic level that gets us to not rebel against Him, is not about fear of Him coming after us with a baseball bat. Yeah. The fear is fear of rebelling against him. We appreciate who Hashem is, and we would not want to rebel against him in actuality. Is that Yerash Shemaim? Yerash is the general term, fear of heaven. And then there's many levels of fear in heaven. But there's two basic levels of fear. There is Yerah Ila'a and Yerah Tata'a. Higher fear and lower fear. The lower fear is the basic level of fear that gets us to keep Torah and mitzvahs. That's the fear that I don't want to rebel against Hashem. Hashem being the king of kings, I would not want to rebel against him. It's not because I'm afraid he's going to punish me. It's because I'm afraid to rebel against him. There's a certain, you know, like, there's a tzaddik standing in front of you. And you, you, you're not going to do something bad when the tzaddik's in front of you. Why? He's not going to hurt you. Yeah, but there's a certain level of awe that you have of the tzaddik that you just don't want to do something that he finds distasteful. Like respect. Yeah, so the same thing. This basic level of fear is not wanting to rebel against Hashem. It's not about, it's not about being afraid that He's coming after me. That's, that's a level of fear too, but that's very, very low. And, and if that's where a person has to begin, 100%. But that's just the very, very starting point. That's, you know, we have to keep progressing. And in a very basic level of our fear of Hashem, it's that I don't want to rebel against Him. Realizing that, you know, David HaMalach said in Tehillim, Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi I have placed Hashem before me always. Realizing that Hashem is always present, we would never want to rebel against Him. But this is a totally different level. This is great awe. This is awe of Hashem's majesty. When you realize how great Hashem is, and how the Ramam speaks about this, when you think about how great Hashem is, the most perfect of perfect, and how lowly we are, we feel a certain sense of unworthiness, like non-existence, like who am I already? It's just an essential. This, this gets to our core. The first level of fear is it affects our actions, how we behave. This level affects our inner feeling, how we feel about ourselves in respect to Hashem. It's just total nullification. Here's Hashem and here's me and I just feel completely insignificant. And this type of fear, we can only reach through Torah study, which is another reason why we address at the beginning of class women and Torah study, why women, especially in today's day and age, must study Torah. There's no other way to reach this fear of Hashem without Torah study. Ella, lav kol meicha, meicha savil da kazai. Not every mind, however, can sustain such a fear. So, it's available to us through Torah study, and yet, remember, in the beginning of this little section over here, the Altar Rebbe said, From this explanation of the lofty stature of Torah study, the wise man will be able to draw upon himself a state of great awe. Not everybody could have this great awe. And the reason why, we're calling him the wise man, but it's not wise man, it's more spiritually sensitive. Not everybody could handle this kind of fear. 
לאי מינה ולאי מקצסה, מפני פחיסוס ערך נפשי בשרשי ומקר מדרגס התחתינס, דאסה ספירס דאסיה. Yet, even he whose mind cannot bear such a fear, nor even a minute part of it, because the root and source of his soul derives from an inferior level, the lower gradations of the ten sephirah of the world of Asiyah, even he should not be deterred from the actual performance of the Torah and the mitzvahs, or this, this, not having this fear does not pose an obstacle to him, as will be explained further. Okay, so... We said like this, from understanding the level of closeness that we reach with Hashem through Torah study, we can draw upon ourselves this fear of Hashem, which actually is the perfection of service of Hashem. It says, Moshe Rabbeinu said, Hashem commanded us all these statutes in order to fear Hashem, and it's about this that the Talmud says, that Torah study is tar aladarta, the gateway to the dwelling. The dwelling, the home run, the dwelling is reaching, achieving this ultimate awe of Hashem's majesty. You can only get there through Torah study. You contemplate the union, the fusion that happens with our soul, with this divine level of light that none of the worlds can handle. We have to remember this. Even the highest of all spiritual worlds cannot handle this divine light. And yes, yet us being clothed in a physical body, because we cannot see what's happening, we are fusing with this ultimate level of divine light. We realize the closest we have with Hashem during Torah study, we can achieve this great awe. And then he says, wait one second, not everybody could get it. Because maybe a person has a very low soul. So the Altar now seems to be making a distinction between levels of souls. So what are the different levels of souls? Like we discussed previously, there are four spiritual worlds, and there are ten he wrote within each of these spiritual worlds. Every single person's soul derives from A, one of the he wrote, and B, or maybe the opposite way, A from one of the worlds, Atzilat, Bri, Atzira, or Asiya, and B from one of the Sifri wrote in one of the worlds. So depending on where your soul comes from, that's what level soul you have. A person, now, you have to understand that first of all, every soul is holy. The lowest of all souls, because holiness is all-inclusive, there's no such thing really as a low soul. The lowest of all souls includes within it the higher most levels. This is what we discussed in chapter 18. There's no such thing as a low soul. What there is, is a soul that because it derives from the lowest levels, is less spiritually sensitive. But just because you're less spiritually sensitive, it doesn't make you less capable of achieving this union. So even if you don't feel it, you have to understand that it's happening anyway. And a few things about it. First of all, think about you know, Beethoven, who was deaf but could still write music. The music was happening. He was able to create it, and he wasn't able to hear then what he was creating. We cannot, even if you can't feel it, it's still happening. We cannot confuse the experience with the feeling. There are two separate things. There's the feeling and there's the experience. And a lot of times, uh, Rabbi Shtezels gives the example, I'm going to say it in the cleanest way that I can, but in, in the creation of a child, there's the union and there is the experience of the union. The union anyway creates the child. Whether or not there was the experience that a person had during the union. The union itself creates the child and then then there's the whole array of feelings, psychological, emotional, physical, that could be accompanying the union and the creation of the child. And yet, the, the child has been created. And the same thing, even if a person has a very low-level soul, that they cannot, are not spiritually sensitive and they're not in tune to what's happening during the time of Torah study, this does not get in the way of this happening. And we have to be very cognizant of that, that sometimes we don't feel it, and yet we have no idea what's happening when we're studying Torah. It reminded me that I, I, just, I was once traveling, and I had, my niece was on the plane with me. She was nine years old. And I, I had a little baby with me then, and her mother didn't come with her. She came with her father. And she was like, you know, running up and down the aisles. She was like kind of trying to figure things out. And then she said, you know, Rachla, I figured out something. I was watching, you know how they say, like, the speed and the altitude? She said, I was watching the speed and the altitude for most of the flight, and I realized that when we were going lower and when we were flying slower is when I felt that we were moving. 
But when we flow, flew very high and when we flew very fast, it felt like we weren't moving at all. Oh, wow, so beautiful. So sometimes we're achieving the greatest possible unity and yet it feels like we're not moving. And we shouldn't think that because we didn't feel it, it isn't happening. Absolutely, 100%, it's happening. Unfortunately, you may not feel it. But first of all, you won't know until you try. It's not up for us to say, well, I have a low-level soul, so I don't feel it. Oh, yeah? What makes you think you have a low-level soul? Low-level soul has nothing to do with IQ, for instance. There could be a brilliant person who has a low-level soul and a person who's very simple in every other sense, and yet they have a high-level soul. So first of all, you've got to try. And after you try it and then you still don't feel it, then hey, maybe you do have a level, low-level soul. But first of all, your low-level soul is a soul. And every soul is completely 100% holy, part of the divine. And second of all, the unity is happening anyway, whether or not you feel it. So we completed this chapter today, Baruch Hashem, chapter 23, where we examined the quality of what happens during Torah study and why the Zohar says that, Torah and Hashem are entirely one, and how it says in the Tikkunim that the 248 positive commandments are the 248 organs of the king. Because a mitzvah performance gives expression to Hashem's divine will, just as our body gives expression to our soul. And when we study Torah, we become entirely one with Hashem. So that's the end of today's chapter, opening up for I have questions. A question. yes. How do you know which one of these levels you are at the four levels? How we do you? don't. Oh, you'll never know. You may, we will find out one day when Mashiach comes, I guess we'll know. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it's, not, it's not really important for us to know. If we had to know, we would know. We don't have to know. We, what we do know is that each of us has a divine soul. And our divine soul finds no expression unless we keep Torah and, we, and mitzvahs. And if we don't, then it's locked up. Because the only way a divine soul has any mode of expression is through the thought, speech, and action of Torah and mitzvahs. So each of us has a divine soul. And not only do we give our divine soul freedom when we study Torah and we perform mitzvahs, but we actually, we pervade the truth of the first commandment of Anochi Hashem Elokecha. That's where we started. I am God, your God. Every mitzvah that we perform and every time we study Torah, we, we give attestation to the fact that there's actually not only, not only is there no other God besides Hashem? There's actually no other reality besides Hashem. We give Hashem's purest will a total form of expression where there's no hiding of the countenance at all in Torah and Mitzvah. So it's deep not, stuff. We, how, we have to did, sit with it. How do non-Jews deal with the divine if they, can't, if they don't study Torah? I mean, what? So the, the, the non-Jews don't get the same experience that Jewish people get. It's a, de- a different experience. A non-Jew is part of the creation, and a Jewish person having a divine soul is part of the creator himself. So a, divi- a, a non-Jewish person can understand that there's a God through his intellect. He knows that there's a God by seeing the world and by coming to a realization of the God, much as you will walk by a house and know that there was a builder. But the Jewish person has a relationship with the builder or the architect himself. And that, a non-Jew doesn't have that. And that's okay for him. He's not meant to have it. He doesn't have to have it. He still has a purpose in life. Like we said before, that all of humanity has the purpose of goodness. But a Jew has the mission of holiness. And that's different. The Jew has the mission of bringing the awareness of the divine in everything, in the mundane, till the entire world will be an attestation of the fact that there is Hashem and that there is no other existence besides Hashem. And that mission is uniquely accomplished by the Jewish person, bless you, who is Thank delight you. unto the nations. So, so sure. I've met some non-Jewish people who are so spiritual mm-hmm. and more godly than some Jewish people. Like I feel like some Jewish people are so not spiritual, so far away. Okay, so you said two terms. You said two terms, and I want to differentiate between those two terms. You said... You met non-Jewish people who are more spiritual and more godly. Like God-fearing, who studies the Old Testament, which is the Torah. Right. So, spiritual is not the same as godly. Spiritual is the, the pleasure of, of spirituality. So, 
For example, when it comes to eating, and this is also an example that Rabbi Steinsatz gives, right? You cannot, you cannot confuse the, the act of eating with the pleasure that you get from eating, or the, the benefits of eating, the, the nourishment, with the pleasure from eating. So a person can be getting pleasure from eating and not actually get any nourishment from what they're eating. For example, if they're eating um, chips. chips or something even worse. Chocolate. Let's say, let's yeah. say cotton candy. candy that was created with, some, with fake sugar. How do you call it? As, as if it was possible. Aspartame, okay? So there's no nutritional value in it at all. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're drinking aspartame, okay? And it tastes deliciously sweet. So they have the pleasure of eating, but they're not actually gaining nutrition. Then you have the guy who, the mother who's giving her, following that book, forgot that book about how to feed your children. So she takes that, this is what you call that liver, dissociated, I forgot what it's called. She makes them something that's really, really gross tasting. Very, very nutrition packed and gives it to the child. And the child has no pleasure in what they ate. <laughs> but they're getting a huge dose of nutrition. So a person might be performing a mitzvah, and at that time they're not spiritually equipped to know what's going on, and yet they're getting the nutrition of the mitzvah. On the other hand, a person could be sitting on top of a mountaintop and doing this, and feeling very spiritual, but they're not serving Hashem. They're just getting the pleasure of being spiritual. And that's two separate things that's really important to differentiate, especially in our world where people, in the name of God, are actually doing idol worship. They're serving themselves. They're saying, this is what I feel spiritual about right now. And so, one second. It's like the lady who said, I always ask Hashem what to do. I get to the parking lot and I say, Hashem, where do you want me to park? And I admire that. I'm not at all making fun of that, ex only insofar as it detracts from its performance. If a person is not eating kosher and they say, Hashem, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to park? One second. There's 613 minutes that Hashem said, I want you to eat kosher. Very, very explicitly, it's written in the Torah. So, so don't confuse fearing spiritual with actually being divine. Second of all, I'm not going to take it away from them. There's definitely very spiritual non-Jewish people, but they will not experience the same connection with Hashem that a Jewish person will because they're not equipped. The same way that a person is deaf cannot hear because they're not equipped. A person who does not have a divine soul does not have the medium of connection that a Jewish person has. They definitely could connect with Hashem, but in a different way, not in the same way that a Jewish person connects with Hashem. Hashem chose us. It's, we, we hate to say it. Jewish people can't stand saying that we're the chosen nation. It's like, but we say it. Uvanu vacharta, we call it Amen. We say it. And we have Sherbachar Bani, we call it Amen. You have chosen us from all the nations. What did He chose us for? He chose to have this special relationship with us that only we have this exposure of total divine energy and that we have this mission of bringing an awareness. Like Avram Avinu did. What did, uh, the first, what did the first Jew do? He brought an awareness of God to this world. It says that until, Hash, until Avram came around, he was only the God of the heavens. Until Avram came around, then he became the God of the earth too because he brought his awareness. That's the Jewish people's mission of holiness. To make Hash, This world is so apparent that everything you th see will scream Hashem. That's the Jewish mission. Could you, sorry, could you just repeat the last sentence about Avraham? It said that until Avraham came around, Hashem was known as the God of heavens because he wasn't known on earth. It was Avraham who brought the awareness of God on earth. And I, I know I have to tell you on this line, I had a woman that I was learning with years ago, and um, only later did I find out that her mother converted not according to halacha, so she wasn't actually Jewish. And she didn't want to go through the conversion process. So she said to me, you know, Rachel, I'm more Jewish than a lot of Jewish people that you know. Because I keep Shabbos, I keep kosher, and then I have Jewish friends, and they don't even care. They don't care about Shabbos, and they have keep kosher. And I said, listen, I, I cannot hide the truth from you, and what you said is 100% not true. I don't care if you keep Shabbos, and I don't care if you keep kosher. If you're not Jewish, you're not Jewish. It's not keeping, being Jewish is who you are. It's not what you do. It's an essential fact of being Jewish. And unless the person goes through the conversion process, gets into a mikvah, and then Hashem gives them a divine soul, they're simply not Jewish. So definitely there are spiritual non-Jews. There's not just spiritual non-Jews. There's chasidei umas ha'olam. The Ramah speaks about people who are chasidei umas ha'olam, righteous Gentiles, and he says about them that they have a portion of the world to come. 
It's not, we're not writing off the non-Jews. They're important, but they have a different mission in life. No, we do it once a day. Once a day. Or with the two blessings that we say in the morning prayer, there's two blessings. We say, Al-Divrei um, Sairah, that's the, the Nusach Ari, but there's also La'asok B'Divrei Torah, and there's another blessing, Asher Brachar Bani, we call it Amin Vinasalani. The one that is actually in the Torah, I mean, in the Kedosh itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Asher Brachar Bani, probably, because that's what they say when they call them up. Yeah. So that's when you say it just once a day, and that's... And that's enough. That's enough. Yeah. Okay, so we don't have to do it. So. It says one of the reasons why the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed is because they did not make the bracha on the Torah first. They were not cognizant of the one who gave them the Torah. So we have to make a bracha, and women are also obligated to make the bracha in Torah because they have obligation in Torah study as well. Knowing what, how to perform, like we said. So we do have class next week. Uh, I want, oh, Jill left already. We do I have class next week. And a lot of people might be away next week, right? Hopefully we'll have, we'll have, no, you're not going to be here next week? I won't be here next week, but I, uh, 